I told Mary Kay that this Sunday was the the Sunday of assurance because almost the exact same message as we heard this morning is found in the text this evening in Psalm 23. If you'd open your Bibles to Psalm 23. David also had a great assurance that he would someday be with God in heaven forever and ever. Would you please stand and hear the reading of God's holy word as we read Psalm 23. A Psalm of David. This is God's inspired word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we pray in Jesus' name that you would open our eyes, soften our hearts, open our ears, unstop our ears. We pray that your word would comfort our souls and that you would keep me from saying anything improper and that your people would hear your word clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. So the entire psalm really is about David describing his Lord as a shepherd. I think we understand that much. And a good shepherd. In the New Testament, God is called the great shepherd of our souls. But in verse 5, look at verse 5 with me. Something changes. There's a shift. He changes from God as a shepherd to God as a host. As a gracious host. He's describing God as a gracious host who has complete power over all outcomes. This is also our shepherd. So we'll talk today of our shepherd's steadfast love. First, I'd like to look at the table. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Has that phrase ever struck any of you as strange? What in the world are you saying, David? First, we're talking about a shepherd and being led by waters that are nice and green grass and through a valley of death, the shadow of death. And now we're talking about eating in a battle. What is this? Well, David is shifting to discuss the wonderful work of his shepherd who takes care of us in such good care that it seems as if a table is prepared for us even in the midst of enemies. David had many specific enemies. He had many people who hated him, wanted to kill him, were opposed to him, wanted to overthrow him, even in his own family. Even his closest advisors betrayed him. He had real enemies. 
But the enemies of David are actually the enemies of every Christian. The seed of the serpent and the serpent himself. They're the enemies of everyone who serves Jesus. Of course, not enemies in the sense that we go and find them and fight them. But spiritually, they hate us. The world hates us. John said not to be surprised if the world hates you. And Jesus said if the world hates you, remember it hated him first. John 15, he said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would have loved you as its own. If you had stayed in Egypt, in other words. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So our spiritual enemies in general, in general our spiritual enemies are the same spiritual enemies David had. And every saint has always had those who don't serve Jesus Christ. They'll either actively or passively persecute the followers of Christ. Don't ever trick yourself into thinking that people in the world, just because they're nice people, will not in a moment turn on you because of your witness to Christ if the world at large thinks that's the right thing to do. So David, in the presence of all the enemies of God, of the world, the devil, and all the demons that exist, David proclaims that God prepares a table for him. I'd like to talk for a moment about tables. What, what is this exactly? In the ancient Near East and also today in the Middle East and even in the Far East in some countries, sharing a meal with someone is much, much more than just having some friends over and doing a casserole. Hospitality in general is viewed not just as a nice thing to do, but as a responsibility, as a person. It's a great honor to be hospitable and to have people in your home to break bread with you. It's a blessed duty. If there's one thing that I've, I hope that we could pull in from Eastern culture that is wonderful and helpful, it's their view of hospitality. A meal was more than a meal. It was the place where you brought the guest the very best food you could procure, the very oldest wine, the fattest calf, and you shared a meal together. And in the Bible, this is often part of sealing a covenant, making a covenant promise, a covenant bond. You remember when the angel of the Lord and two other angels came to Abraham's tent in Genesis 18. And Abraham told his wife, quick, make a meal. Kill the fatted calf and bring out uh, the best drinks we have. And they provided a, a small feast for the pre-incarnate Christ. And it's at that time that he told Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. In Exodus 12, we see that Israel was told for all eternity until the earth came to an end that Israel should participate in a meal a Passover meal which is now the Lord's Supper 
in Exodus 24. Actually, turn with me to Exodus chapter 24. Let's read this together. Caleb, you're going to like this. Listen up. Exodus 24, verses 7 to 11. This is fascinating. Thinking of meals and preparing a table. Then Moses, that's the he, Moses. Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. This is verse 7. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of the people of Israel. And behold, they beheld God, and ate and drank. What is this eating and drinking? It's a covenant meal. God is sealing His covenant in various ways, and one of the ways that He seals the covenant is with a meal. He brought all of the leaders of Israel up to the mountain with Him. And they had a meal. They had a meal together as the covenant was being established with God's people. If you remember when Jesus... The night before he was betrayed, he also established the new covenant with a meal. This will make more sense later as we talk about it, but for now, suffice it to say that to prepare a meal, to prepare a table for a guest was a great honor. It was a sign of peace and prosperity and faithfulness and goodwill. To break bread together was often to bind your hearts together in covenant. And it often solved problems with enemies as well. Remember when Elisha was with his servant in this city and they looked up and there were a whole army around them, the Arameans. And the servant was terrified. And Elisha said, open his eyes that he can see. So he saw the angels, the host of the living God around them as well. So he wasn't afraid. And then when Elisha faced the army, the enemy army, he struck them all blind and brought them into Samaria, the capital of northern Israel. And the king of Israel said, what do we do, Elisha? Should we kill them all? And Elisha's answer is just a piece of Middle Eastern genius. He says, no, let's feed them. So they gave a great feast for this enemy army. It bound the enemy to great dishonor if they didn't retaliate in kind or in peace. And the whole Aramean army was fed. And after the feast, after they broken bread together and drank together, the Bible says that they stopped raiding Israel's territory. Are you having trouble with somebody in your life or in church? Pour your life into them in some way. Break bread with them. Have them over. Have a meal with them. This hospitality, this um, 
this culture of hospitality still exists in the Far East, the Middle East, mostly the Middle East today. Uh, there's a movie, um, I don't recommend it necessarily, but it's a movie about a, a man who was part of a SEAL team and everyone's killed except for one guy, and it's a true story. And this guy finds himself, he wanders into this little Afghan village, and the man who brings him into his house basically risks his whole life to protect him. And you might think, well, that's just really sweet. He loves Americans. No, it wasn't that at all. He brought this broken, wounded man into his home. And in the Far Eastern or Middle Eastern culture, that means a responsibility to feed and protect him. And he risks his own life to feed and protect this man. That's the wonder of this uh, culture of hospitality that I love. Also, I remember uh, when I lived in Kuwait, this was a long time ago, 1989, but I saw this. There was a Bedouin uh, with his camels, and they were walking on the side of their highway, and I'm driving in my little car as an 18-year-old. Didn't realize the danger involved, maybe, but I just pulled over and decided to say hi and talk to the guy. He stopped his whole thing, waved me over to the tent. There was tea there. We didn't speak the same language. He offered me tea. He wanted me to feel very welcome. Of course, at the time, I didn't understand it. I just thought he was nice. That's his culture. If a stranger walks up to you, you welcome them. You offer them the best that you have. You pour out your love upon them. And I actually got a picture with him. He's a wonderful-looking, happy man. And such is their culture. I bet if I could produce that picture today, if he were still alive, he would remember and honor me once again. So all that I'd just give you as context because David is saying, God prepares a table for us. This tradition of hospitality and generosity, David is saying, God is this wonderful host who's preparing this extravagant meal for me. He's blessing me with abundance. He's killed the fatted calf. He's preparing a table of fellowship and blessing for me. He's made David his his friend forever. This is what it means to prepare a table. And I think it's no coincidence that in Revelation 19, God describes heaven in terms of a meal. Revelation 19.6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Is this going to be a real supper? I hope so. Well, whatever it is, it's going to be wonderful. The fact is that it's in the presence of enemies that God prepares a table for David and for us. What does he mean by that? He means that the power of our host is such that our enemies can do nothing to disrupt our fellowship. 
Nothing to disrupt the blessing. They cannot stop it. Nothing can keep God from blessing his children, not even God's enemies, not even our enemies. Rather, the enemies are forced just to watch as we fellowship with our Lord together. They can't disturb it, and they also cannot enjoy it. This is to prepare a table in the presence of our enemies. And God still blesses his people this way. If you've ever asked Jim McGowan how he's doing, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his suffering, he always says, I'm much better than I deserve. Jim sees more clearly than I do that so many ways that God blesses and preserves us. I think if we were to see all the ways that God does prepare for us a table, a spiritual table, we would be humbled to the point of shame and embarrassed for our presumption. His extravagant care for us, his spiritual care of us, his physical care for us is beyond compare. Such is the nature of our shepherd. There's nothing the enemy can do to stop it. So we should trust our Lord. We should trust him even in the middle of difficult times. We would trust that he really is doing good. It's a hard truth, especially when you are truly suffering, to think that the Lord is working something good. And yet it is true. I also think that we should take the example of our Lord who prepares a table for us and actually regularly show hospitality to each other. In this body, I'm not talking about inviting your best friends over. I'm talking about breaking bread with everyone in this church, especially those you don't know well. And whenever there's a guest who walks through those doors, it should just be a race to that person. Hey, can you come over for for lunch? It's not much, but you're welcome to it. We pray for unity in our body, and this is good. We desire unity in our body. This is good. There's no better way that I know of to achieve this end than to break bread together regularly, to eat meals together, to be in each other's homes. So prayerfully consider opening your home to others in our body with the same generosity and faithfulness of our Lord. It's just a small way that you can shower blessing upon others the way God has showered blessing upon you. Our God has truly prepared a table before us, a spiritual table of blessing in the presence of enemies. Secondly, he says that he anoints our heads with oil and our cup overflows. David says, you anoint my head with oil. This is also something foreign to our culture. So if you do invite someone over to your house for a meal, don't pour oil on their heads. That won't be received well. But in the Eastern culture, pouring oil on someone's head was a great honor. It was a sign of welcome and rest. It's the opposite of dressing in sackcloth and ashes, putting ashes on your head. That's a sign of mourning in the East. But to, to pour oil on someone's head was a sign of great honor. It was a sign of relaxation, of safety, of blessing. The oil of joy.
In the 1800s, there was a captain in American service named Wilson. He wrote about his time in India, speaking of this particular psalm. He said, I once had this ceremony performed on myself in the house of a great and rich Indian. In the presence of a large company, the gentlemen of the house poured upon my head and my hands and my arms a delightful perfume. Then he put a golden cup into my hand and he poured wine in it until it ran over purposefully. He said that it was a great pleasure to receive him, for him to receive me, and that I should find a rich supply in his house. He showed me great honor. It's interesting that that still exists in the Eastern culture today. This man probably was not a Christian, the Indian. So remember also, it's all, I mean, it really is throughout the scriptures, this this anointing with oil being an honor. When Jesus was in the house of a Pharisee, a woman of the city, probably a prostitute, came into the house and washed his feet with her tears. You remember this? Dried the feet with her hair. And anointed them with perfume and kissed his feet and wouldn't stop. Jesus said to the Pharisee, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Jesus telling the Pharisee, you haven't even honored me in the slightest. In that culture, the Pharisee should have anointed his head and should have kissed him as a greeting on both cheeks and then given him water for his feet. And these things were just expected of a host, not even someone who loved you, just a host. And in the East, of course, this was very rude behavior indeed, not to do any of these things. And yet the dishonor showed Jesus by the Pharisee to that same level the honor was showed to him by the woman. Our hearts are also like this woman, I believe, when we consider what our Lord Jesus has done for us. When we consider... All that he's done, all that the Father has done, all that the Spirit has done. How I long to see our Lord, to grasp his feet, to kiss them, to worship him. Of course, later another woman anointed Jesus' whole body with expensive perfume just before his death. So when David says he's anointed with oil and his cup overflows, he's saying... That God is not only faithful, but he's generous and kind in his love. He's overflowing in his love. He delights in his children. Those he saved are his delight, as we sang this morning. His love overflows in every way that matters. Not necessarily in a physical, worldly way. It's not that we're just all going to get rich because God loves us. Remember, Jesus himself was a poor man. He walked this earth as a poor man. And yet he was blessed beyond measure, beyond all men. 
by his father. Paul saw this as well and said that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. He wanted to be with a Savior. So from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Everything we have from God, all the blessing we have from God are to his glory. And then David closes with a rousing sentence of confidence. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. This word mercy is hesed, it's covenant love, reflecting on the goodness of our God. David concludes just with this acknowledgement. It's something we all know. God is good. Nobody's good but God alone, and we should affirm his goodness throughout our lives. And he cannot but be good. He's infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably good. All that he does is good. When I was a young Youngster, I remember this song my dad would lead us in as our part of our family worship. God is good all the time. You remember that song? It's true. What a great truth to have as a child that God is good all the time. You don't have to understand what God is doing, but you should never doubt his goodness. David stating that in God's providence, all will be well because God is good. His goodness will follow him all the days of his life. All the days of this wilderness journey, God's goodness will follow you, his people. And his goodness is tied to his mercy, to his covenant love, to his steadfast love which endures forever. Considering the mention of the meal and how much meals meant to covenant promises, and the great abundance of God's love that's shown for us, there's no doubt that David is tying all this together with the word hesed. God's covenant faithfulness to David is the same as his covenant faithfulness to us. All of his covenant promises are yes and amen in Christ and ours in Christ. God has promised, he's covenanted to align himself with the seed of the woman, the children of Abraham, and to bless his descendants. You remember when God made the covenant with Abraham and ratified it in Genesis 17, he split the animal in two, Abraham did. The bloody mess of this animal was split in two. And then God put Abraham to sleep, and God walked through it himself. He's saying, Abraham, all the stipulations of the covenant, you don't have to do this. I'm going to do it myself. I will ensure that you receive these promises. That my steadfast love will remain on you forever. When God walked through the animal pieces, He was walking figuratively through the blood of His own Son. God has bound Himself to David and to you with that kind of covenant love. So David, of course, can say, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Paul says the same, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So the conclusion is obvious. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
David's confidence is our confidence because it's confidence in the work of Jesus. Not in our own work, but in the work of God. David says, even after I'm dead, I will be with Yahweh forever. I will live in the house of Yahweh forever. Why? Because God's promises are just like God. They're infinite, they're eternal, and they're unchangeable. So this is the last day that we'll talk about this psalm in a sermon, probably for a long time, so I just want to review it with you. The Lord is my shepherd. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's your shepherd. I shall lack nothing. I don't need anything because of God's character, because of his goodness. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Because of his steadfast love, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He gives me everything I need. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even when I am close to death or fear this life, I don't have to fear any evil because he's with us. He comforts us. He prepares a table before us. He anoints our head with oil. Our cups run over. Because of his goodness and his mercy, we are confident that we will dwell in the house of Yahweh, our God, forever. Because of God and his character, we're confident in this. Our hope is found in nothing less than in Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful and we thank you for your love, your covenant love for us. We thank you that you've raised us up for your own purposes, for your glory, and that as a shepherd, as a father, as a master, as a king, as a brother, as a a wonderful captain, as a Lord, you rule over us and you protect us and you provide for us, you care for us. We pray that we would increasingly see the, the goodness of your care for us, the, the great table that you prepare for us, even in the midst of this hostile world. You care for us physically, you care for us spiritually, you care for us emotionally, you care for us in so many ways. There are so many people in the world who are despairing to the point of death. You know, one of my own friends killed himself this week. What a horrible and hopeless end to a life. Pray in Jesus' name that you would open our eyes. Let us see the great love that you have for your people. Pray that anytime we're tempted to depression or despair, that all of these things that we've studied tonight would comfort our souls. And that we could even share love, share your love with those who are suffering, who are depressed, who are lonely who have nothing to hold on to that's solid. Lord, you've given us yourself and all of your very precious promises. We pray that they would inspire our souls to serve you well. In Jesus' name.